Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am discussing the case of Holly Perenin. Holly was only 10 years old when she walked to a neighbor's house to see some puppies and seemingly vanished into thin air, only leaving behind one sneaker in the road where she was last seen. After decades of breakthroughs and stalls in the case, just last October, there was a huge discovery that almost no one is talking about. I was inspired to cover Holly's case after discussing the case of Molly Bish. As you might remember from that episode, when Molly Bish was 10 years old, she was at church and heard Holly Peranian's story. She was so moved by what happened to Holly and her family that she felt compelled to write them a letter to express her condolences. This would later connect the two families after Molly went missing as well. I'd never heard Holly's case before researching Molly Bish's case. I thought as kind of a small tribute to Molly Bish, I'd cover Holly's case. So let's get into it. Holly Kristen Perenin was born on January 19, 1983, to her parents Tina and Rick in Grafton, Massachusetts. Holly was their first child, and she was absolutely their pride and joy. Both Tina and Rick worked, so most often Holly's paternal grandmother Maureen watched her. Maureen says that Holly was incredibly sweet and absolutely no trouble to look after. But pretty soon, Holly would no longer be the only child and end up getting two little brothers, Andrew and Zach. Not long after this, Holly's parents would end up getting a divorce and sharing custody of their three children. Let's fast forward a bit to the end of the summer of 1993. 10-year-old Holly just attended a week-long summer camp with her 13-year-old cousin Leah. The following week, on Wednesday, August 4th, Rick took Holly, 5-year-old Zach, and 8-year-old Andrew to his mother's summer cottage on South Pond in Sturbridge. This is about 30 minutes west of Grafton. Rick planned on staying there with the kids for one week. It was just kind of a staycation to enjoy some of the last weeks of summer before the kids went back to school. According to Holly's family, she wanted to be a marine biologist when she grew up. So although it wasn't exactly the ocean, she loved being at the cottage and especially loved swimming, fishing, and going out on the boat. She loved everything to do with the water. She specifically couldn't wait to swim with dolphins someday. On the morning of August 5th, the family has some breakfast and then Rick takes the kids out on the boat and they all go swimming. After a while, they head back to the cottage. One thing that was really exciting about this particular trip to their grandmother's house was that the neighbor's collies just had a whole litter of puppies, and they let these puppies out into the yard every day around noon. So, obviously, pretty excited about this, Holly asks her father if she can go see the puppies. Rick does say that he was trying to give Holly a little more freedom that summer. She was 10, she was going to enter the fifth grade in a few weeks... So he says, yeah, you can, but you need to bring one of your brothers with you. He also tells her that she can't stay long because they had plans to go to McDonald's for lunch pretty soon. But Holly is determined to see these puppies. So she recruits her five-year-old little brother, Zach, to tag along and they rush over to the neighbor's house. Now, this area is pretty much out in the country. 
so the houses are pretty spread out, and Holly and Zach have to walk a few hundred yards to get to the neighbor's back fence. But just a few minutes later, Zach comes back to the cottage alone. He just walks in the door and starts playing with Legos. Rick sees this and, of course, asks him, you know, where's your sister? And Zach tells him that Holly told him to go home. In my research, I did find some conflicting reports about why Holly told Zach to go home. I've seen that Holly was angry and yelled at Zach to go home. I've seen that Zach was scared by one of the full-grown dogs. One article even said that Zach said that Holly was scared, so I can't say for sure exactly what happened here. But Rick tells Zach to grab his older brother and walk right back outside and get Holly. So Holly's brothers walk back to the neighbor's fence to get Holly, but she isn't there. They look around a bit and they see something in the dirt road next to the fence. They walk over to investigate and they realize that it's one of Holly's sneakers. So they rush back to the cottage to show their father. When Rick sees Holly's shoe, he obviously freaks out and he tells his sons to show him exactly where they found the shoe. But again, Holly is nowhere to be found. Rick goes to the house where the puppies were and drives around for a bit, but again, she's just gone. So Rick heads back to the cottage and calls 911 at 12.50 p.m. He also calls Holly's mother, who is horrified and rushes to Sturbridge. Just minutes later, the Sturbridge police and the Massachusetts State Police respond to the call. To their credit, they spring right into action and start looking through the neighborhood for Holly. Here is Holly's mother, Tina, describing to WCVB News how she knew immediately that something was very wrong. We knew something really bad had happened because we knew she wouldn't have gone off walking in the woods without both of her shoes on and lifting up trash can lids to see if your daughter is in there and screaming out her name and praying that she was going to be okay. They search the lake, they search sheds, they search people's yards, but they don't find any trace of Holly. But as investigators work through the scene and speak to witnesses, they are able to confirm some things and also get some pretty important leads. A neighbor confirms that she saw Holly and possibly one of her brothers near the fence about 20 feet from the road around noon. And a man who was meeting his mother for lunch says that just after noon, he saw two young boys standing by the side of the road, and they appeared to be looking for something. After investigators speak to Rick about the condition of the road where Holly was found and examining the scene for themselves, they were able to confirm that there was no indication of a burnout or a car accident. This led investigators to believe that Holly was most likely not the victim of a hit-and-run. This also led them to believe that if Holly was taken by someone, the perpetrator didn't appear to be in much of a hurry, and most likely slowly entered the area, grabbed Holly, and slowly drove away. In my research, I wasn't able to find anything about footprints at the scene, so I'm not sure if there were no footprints or if that information just hasn't been released to the public. I have to imagine that if Holly was missing a shoe, there was probably a struggle. Holly was 10 years old and 4 foot 6. She wasn't a small child that would be easy to grab and throw under your arm, at least for most people. So I'm hoping that there were more clues on that dirt road than authorities are releasing. I mean, the instant that her parents found out that Holly didn't have one of her shoes, they knew that something terrible probably happened. Although she loved swimming, the lake, and the outdoors, Holly just wasn't a walk-around-outside-with-no-shoes type of girl. So when investigators put all of this together, they were strongly considering the possibility that Holly could have been abducted. 
But when they spoke to this next set of witnesses, it became their leading theory. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. While Holly was trying to see the puppies at the neighbor's fence, the neighbors up the hill were packing up their car to go on vacation. In this group are two 16-year-old girls who are cousins. At some point, they go down the driveway to grab the mail before leaving, but before they get to the mailbox, they see a white or light brown truck with a cap over the bed coming down the hill. When this truck gets close to the girls, the driver begins to slow down from about 40 miles per hour to walking speed, and he begins to look at them in a way that really creeps them out. One of the girls is even quoted as saying that she really thought this man was going to jump out of the truck and grab one of them. So they literally run back up the driveway towards their dads, and the man drives away down the hill to where Holly is. Eventually, the girls go back down to get the mail before leaving on vacation, and they see the man coming back up the hill. This man, again, slows down to a walking pace and just stares at these girls. So they again go back to their dads, and the man continues up the hill. One of these cousins heads inside to use the bathroom on the second floor and she's pretty freaked out, so she peeks out the window to make sure that the man is really gone, and she sees him again. This time, he's driving back down the hill, but he doesn't slow down at their house this time. He just proceeds down the hill near the area where Holly is. The girls have described this driver as a white, middle-aged man with facial hair wearing a hat. But again, all of these things put together really lead investigators to believe that Holly was taken. The next day, the Massachusetts State Police requested the assistance of the FBI due to the strong possibility that Holly was abducted and possibly taken across state lines. That morning, Holly's grandmother, Maureen, calls America's Most Wanted. In one report, I read something that absolutely made me cry. Apparently, the host of America's Most Wanted, John Walsh, was actually out on his boat that day but he got a page on his beeper and dropped everything and drove 60 miles to a studio to record for Holly. By midday, the producers of the show put together three different video spots for her. The spots were 5 to 30 seconds long and sent to television stations all around the U.S. In the next few days, they utilize a lot of resources in the search for her. There's helicopters, dogs, volunteers, there's divers, there's Boy Scouts, and more. They posted Holly's picture at every toll booth in the state, and they put out more PSAs, but they come up with nothing. The police are still getting leads, but there's just no trace of Holly anywhere. 
So her parents make the decision to go in front of news cameras and make a public plea for their daughter. We're begging anyone with any information if they could just just let us know where she is. Holly's grandmother, Maureen, says that at this point, they pretty much suspected everyone. We were just suspicious of everybody. And uh, some people were cooperative and some weren't. And if they weren't, we gave their names to the police. And uh, nothing came of it. Like we see in these older cases in these smaller towns, the community was absolutely floored. Maureen told the news, quote, You didn't expect anything like that out there. My own kids grew up out there. End quote. The search for Holly ended about a week after she disappeared. On the weekend of August 14th, the community held a vigil and a fundraiser for Holly. Her parents used the donated funds to hire a private investigator, print more flyers, and just keep the investigation going. At this point, her family was desperate for anything that would lead them to Holly. They even began to investigate about five locations where psychics told them Holly could be. But again, they come up with nothing. Over the next few weeks, they put up a few billboards. And the community shows their support by tying pink ribbons to trees in the area. But Holly's case essentially goes cold. The man in the truck driving up and down the hill past Holly is never identified. And nothing major really happens in the investigation until October 23rd, when hunters discover something in the woods that would change Holly's case forever. On October 23rd, 79 days after Holly went missing, Tina gets a call from a reporter asking if she can give any information about the body found in the woods. Tina's heart absolutely sinks. She has no idea what this reporter is talking about, but she can only imagine. Five miles from where Holly went missing, a group of five hunters and their dogs were out in the woods when they discovered a skull and skeletal remains that looked to be about the size of a child. When police arrived at the scene, they also found a small-sized t-shirt, overalls, and one sneaker. Eventually, after what I can only imagine was a gut-wrenching wait for Holly's family, investigators confirm that it was Holly's body that was found. They still have not released the cause of death to this day, but it was revealed that Holly was stripped naked, assaulted, and murdered. This definitely wasn't the resolution the family was hoping for but they were finally able to lay Holly to rest in November. Unfortunately, finding Holly's remains didn't get investigators much closer to finding out who murdered her. Back in 1993, they just didn't have the same technology we do today to do the advanced testing needed on her remains or the items found nearby. But they were able to determine that the perpetrator was most likely local to the area. See, this is a hunting area where Holly was found, and it's pretty desolate and only really known to locals. It's not somewhere where you pull off the road and walk right into. You kind of have to know how to get there. So they do get something from this discovery in 1993, but the case goes cold for almost 20 years. It wouldn't be until 2012 when investigators announced that they have a very new significant lead. Obviously, in the 19 years since Holly's remains were found, there were some pretty significant advances in DNA testing. Investigators still haven't released exactly what they tested, but they do test something from the scene where Holly was found, and they get a match to a man named David Pouliot. 
This was obviously huge news in Holly's case. So District Attorney Mark Mastriani holds a press conference to announce their findings. On August 5th, 1993, at approximately 12.50 p.m., 10-year-old Holly Peranian of Grafton was reported missing by her father, Richard Peranian. Holly had been vacationing with him and other family members at a cottage in Sturbridge. On October 23rd, 1993, Holly's skeletal remains were found by hunters in a wooded area off Five Bridge Road in Brimfield. The scene was photographed and processed by personnel from the Massachusetts State Police. Items in the Peranian case were analyzed. There was one specific item that was subject to forensic testing, and as a result of that forensic testing, an indisputable match and identification to a person was made. And matched forensically is a David Edmund Puglia, formerly a resident of Springfield, now deceased. Uh, he passed away, he died in 2003. This is a photograph of him from January of 1999. Again, David Edmund Pouliot from June 1999. The person identified we can't establish had a familiarity and in fact a connection to that very area where Holly disappeared and where her remains were found. Uh, and I repeat, Mr. Pouliot at this time is not being named a suspect. However, I can tell you that evaluation of the nature and the character of the piece of evidence that was tested, as well as the specific location it was found and the condition in which it was found, we consider to be very relevant in this investigation. Well, she was a typical 10-year-old. Um, she wanted to be a marine biologist. She loved the water. She loved swimming. She loved being out in Sturbridge. Um, she was out there on vacation with her father and her brothers. And um, she was just a lovable little girl, and we miss her. Pretty much we've all been just hanging on, waiting for this, and we were always told that we had to wait for technology to, to come along, and it's been a long wait. Hopefully this is... This is the technology we wanted. We are again asking the public to call us with information they have about this case. Information they may not think is important, but I can assure you that all information in this investigation is important. Holly's grandmother told the local news that she was cautiously optimistic. This was absolutely huge for Holly's case but this guy still wasn't being named an official suspect, and he'd already passed away. So I imagine that there were a lot of conflicting feelings there, but this guy seemed to fit the bill. He could have matched the description of the man going up and down the hill in the truck, and he was known to hunt and fish in the exact area where Holly was found. But unfortunately, this event came and passed, and authorities were never definitively able to say that this man killed Holly. So again, Holly's case just sits, waiting for more information and more clues. 2018 marked 25 years since Holly went missing and was found murdered. 
and there was a pretty big push for answers on this anniversary, including a $40,000 reward and a tip campaign called Hope for Holly. The family also did a ton of interviews. It doesn't feel like it's been 25 years, most, most days, and then sometimes it feels like it was a lifetime ago. Her friends have grown up and gotten married and have children, and we say, that could be her. 25 years later, we're still missing this beautiful little girl. We really need to find out the person or persons who are responsible for this. We need to be able to understand what happened. Why, why did you do this? Luckily, it wouldn't take another decade before the next break in Holly's case. Just last year, in October of 2020, investigators announced another huge discovery. Investigators exhumed the body of a man who was 18 when Holly went missing. They were very tight-lipped about this situation at first. I mean, we still don't even have the name of this man, but we do know something. The reason for exhuming this man's body was because investigators were told that the man was buried with a letter that could prove to have useful information in Holly's case. However, the body had been buried for decades at this point, and the coffin apparently suffered some water damage. In the most recent reports I found, the family was still unsure whether or not anything of value came from exhuming this man. And this is where Holly's case stands today. It's been almost 30 years, and despite having Holly's remains, DNA, and who knows what else, her family is still searching for answers. Which brings me right to our call to action. Please take a moment to share Holly's story and picture. The latest break in this case is from literally last year. The investigators seem very willing to work this case and dedicate resources to it. It just seems like they need a little bit of help. As a reminder, Holly Perenin was 10 years old when she was murdered. She had dark brown hair and brown eyes, and she was approximately 4 foot 6 inches tall. Anyone with information is urged to call the Massachusetts State Police at 413-505-5946. There is still a $40,000 reward for information leading to an arrest. But as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice.